We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host, as usual, this week is Neil Bradley. Hey, everyone. So this week, we are going to talk just a little bit, as usual, about uh, about the, uh, well, events that have happened of late uh, in the world, events of note that have happened of late in the world, and uh, also maybe... Uh, a few other historical events that uh, whose anniversary uh, has happened over the past in, in, the, in, in recent in recent days, uh, specifically a few events of the First World War, um, and also about the general social chaos, environmental chaos, and political craziness that is continuing to worsen. And prevail on the planet, as the voiceover says in the in our introductory song. Uh, just look at the state of this reality. The look reality at, creators created. Look at the reality they created. Uh, it's yeah. an absolute nightmare. Yeah, most people still don't visibly see or feel or understand that they are well, bliss- blissfully unaware of it. That's what we're kind of asking, you know. Uh, people paying attention you know do they see um what's going on in the world i can understand how it might be how it would be a problem for a lot of people on two uh counts maybe the first one the main one being a lack of interest or desire to actually see or recognize uh what's going on in the world state of the world, the direction it's going, because it's not a, a pleasant thing to contemplate. But uh, the second reason why it might escape people's attention or notice is um, is because it, it's been around for quite a long time now, <laughs> relatively speaking, you know. That's the thing. We're um, It's a bit of a paradox in a certain sense. It's it's been going on. We've been talking about it for for so long now, for you know more than ten years, that it's almost almost become kind of commonplace. Chaos has become commonplace. So if you were to point these things out to people, they might say, "Well, yeah, but you know that happens all the time, (laughs) and it kind of does." But that doesn't mean it's a good thing, or doesn't mean it's normal. Right? It happens all the time. Yeah. Now, over the past, it's been happening. Uh, increasingly over the past, you know, ten years, but uh, that doesn't mean it's always been that way. It hasn't. If you got, if you can right. extend your memory back, you know, twenty years, fifteen or twenty years, this kind of stuff, stuff that is happening today on, on a regular basis was not happening then. Yeah, we're we're regularly accused of being shrill, alarmist, and comments or emails sent into us. A recent one um, involved. We were pointing out that earthquakes are increasing. We'll talk about it on today's show. Uh, what data could we provide for that? Well, I started to look, <laughs> and 
the the process of normalizing the reality takes place so automatically that at least a shallow search for this kind of information will say to you that the normal rate of, say, for example, earthquakes over a certain magnitude is what the stat they gave was 50 to 60 year, per year. And that's normal. It's not. That's just something like a 70-fold increase, a three times increase in the actual normal background rate. But what I'm, what I'm saying is in, it could be Wikipedia, it could be in the news, it could just be regular mainstream reports, normalizes it, and not even as a matter of conspiracy. It's simply the way the mind takes new stuff and just reshapes it. it we, we are automated psycho-reality created. Yeah, well... Most people are. Yeah, exactly. They will normalize, essentially. People seek to normalize events in the world, but that's bad because it's, it's actually a bad... Um, it's a negative ability, I suppose you could say, because um, in in I mean, under normal conditions, it's not it's it's fine, but under conditions where things are getting progressively worse and people tend to normalize those, uh, it means that they're not going to really feel a need to do anything about them or to even you know to sit up and take notice, which is maybe the most important thing that people can and should do. Um, or maybe it's the only thing that most people can actually do is sit up and take notice, but they won't even do that, you know, because not because they don't care, but because it's um, disturbing, and also because there's this natural tendency to normalize uh, as conditions prevail on the planet around them, and they see them repeating. For example, like tornadoes, you know, every year now a tornado rips through uh, the U.S. For example. Uh, and some part of it, or several of them, rip through the U.S. and kill people. Well, the normalizers say every single year, as long as history, the U.S. has been around, tornadoes have done so. Well, that's not true. Every year, if you look at the statistics and look at the numbers of people killed over the past, you know, say 10 years compared to the to 10 or 20 or 30 years before that, you don't have the same number of tornadoes on the same, I mean, on the same consistency of tornadoes that we've had over the past, um, you know, between five and ten years, it's it's you know we're right in, at the beginning, let's say, of the real craziness happening. Let's say, relatively speaking, um, we're at the beginning of the past five or ten years. So, um, you know, it maybe takes a while for people to really to realize that that's not normal. You know, it has to go on for twenty years. People say, "Hang on, this has been going on for twenty years. That's not normal." But then the problem is, it's been going on for twenty years. Therefore, it is normal. <laughs> you know, I keep coming back to this Guardian article we brought up in the show a couple of months back where some psychologists were putting forward a serious hypothesis that people like us, Joe, <laughs> who talk about things not being normal. Well, we are abnormal. We're definitely in that minority. Sense, you know? <laughs> you're in a minority and you're abnormal in the sense that you're not... Uh, we've given up uh, a desire for the world to be... Uh, you know, this safe, comfortable place where God is in his heaven and all is right with the world and whatever's going to happen, it's not going to be so bad and everything will continue on. Uh, you know, the normalcy bias, essentially. Uh, we've given that up, sure. So we're not normal in that sense uh, because most people still cling to that, that they want the world to continue on and to there not to be any major global upsets 
that would change life for most people on the planet pretty fundamentally. Um, we don't, we've, we've faced into that reality and accepted it. Most people don't, uh, haven't and, and don't, and don't want to because they're invested in the world continuing to be, to be a safe place. Despite, uh, and that, that desire to do that will, uh, lead them to, like we've just been saying, ignore a lot of details or data points that suggest that it's no longer a safe place, that God is not in, in his heaven. He maybe never was. And certainly nowadays, things are not uh, right with the world. For now, they are rewarded by objective reality in the sense of when they incorporate this in strange data, make it normal, uh, tsunami passes, volcano A uh, calms down, earthquake stops, things get rebuilt in that particular area. And so they're rewarded by the reality and, and therefore they keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And they're going to keep doing it until there's, there's so much chaos that... Yeah, well, until they can't anymore. Because the point is that this isn't... This should be seen, these events that we're talking about, particularly the... Well, it's across the board. It's social chaos, political chaos, and environmental chaos. Uh, these shouldn't be seen as things like we're saying just uh, become the new normal and but everything continues on as normal let's say or nothing changes dramatically these are all precursors or portents or signs that thing something is building up to a real shift or real change you know it's like when you see if you imagine somebody you know a neighbor or a friend or even a family member who suddenly starts acting in strange ways you know maybe shows but Become, has become a bit depressive or a bit violent or a bit angry, let's say, uh, and that it's increasing, you know, month on month type of thing, you know. You would assume, you could, it's rational enough to assume that there may be something going wrong there and this could be leading to some kind of a catastrophe, something, uh, a situation where this person may do something that he and everybody else will regret. This is going to end in tears. Yes, exactly. That's normal enough for people in interpersonal dynamics where they would see, yeah, uh, you know, a worsening of the conditions, psychological condi- psychological conditions of of, a, of an individual. But when it's on the planet, the psychology, let's say, of the planet, the planet is going a bit mad. You know, it's showing signs of losing losing the plot. Um, they you can't they can't conceive of. First of all, there's a problem of powerlessness in the sense of I can't do anything about it. It's such a big world. It's such a big planet. There's such a big it's such a big system. Uh, these are systems that are, you know, volcanoes, earthquakes, tornadoes. Who's going to do anything about that? So it's understandable. But and, and we understand that it's difficult and it's hard and it's um, not easy for people to do. But uh, it's important to uh, to try and face into them, to recognize that these signs and symptoms are very similar to someone going, a person going downhill and uh, people should be worried, you know. Uh, I mean, in, the, in that situation with, a, with an individual, you might be worried for your own safety if it's a close family member. Well, you should be equally worried for your own safety because of what's happening on the planet <clears throat> across the different spheres. Yeah. You know, you should be looking to your own local, well, I mean, you should be looking at a global environment, but also in your own local environment for social issues, political issues, um, and also environmental issues. Because if you close your eyes, you know, you're just asking for it, basically. They're asking to be caught unawares. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So, so what, we, what sphere do you want to open with today? Well, I don't know. Um, there's just a few. There's many different little details, you know, um, that just together all combine to show that this world is really fundamentally screwed up, and it's under. If you if you wanted to point to a single cause, you would have to point to the kind of psychopaths in positions of power who have been in positions of power, entrenched in positions of power, and expanded their ideology to such an extent that it's infected a large section of the kind of the, the ruling classes, the corporate classes, and um, society in general. Uh, that 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 uh, that influence from that top from the top down, having been so entrenched or, uh, for so long, um, is look, looks like it's shaping up to uh, you know create some kind of on a social level anyway create some kind of um, a crisis. Uh, I mean, there's just there's little examples like I say of different things that all point to these people have psychos gone wild type thing um, and, and have spread, having spread their infection around to, to everybody where it's just pure greed and uh, selfishness and the results of that, you know. I mean, there's a report in the UK. I mean, a lot of stuff only comes out when it's too late. There's a report in the UK about um, <clears throat> further cuts in the National Health Service, government cuts to the National Health Service in the UK of uh, uh, two, bo- two billion pounds worth of stealth cuts they said which means that they did it without telling anybody and then just said oh yeah you're not getting that money uh, that hospital is going to close that hospital is going to close um, you know the, they're creating these conditions where if you had some kind of a crisis it's bizarre it looks like it's it almost looks like it's intentional uh, but we don't imagine that it is intentional it's just the result of naked unfettered greed and selfishness doing what it does and creating the results that it creates so um, <clears throat> you can imagine uh, some kind of a, a natural catastrophe, for example, in, in the UK, you know, uh, I mean, who knows, you know, a major storm or some kind of, uh, who knows, maybe even a meteorite impact or some kind of a, you know, I mean, there have been little signs like in the UK you had these wildfires up in Scotland for a long time. There's, there's all these little hints of different things that could happen uh, from an environmental um, perspective, um, or even politically or economically, uh, a major um, economic downturn um, and the social chaos that often results from that. Um, if you don't have a proper health care service, if you've shut down many hospitals and uh, a lot of doctors have been sacked or fired or whatever, and nurses, etc., that's not exactly, you're basically taking away your backup system, you know, your support system that would help in the event of some kind of a crisis, you know, that, that's being eviscerated. And it just seems to be happening, all of these things seem to be happening, it's happening around the world in different places. Uh, if something goes wrong, the the social support system has been stripped away to nothing and pe- it'll, it'll compound any uh, crises that occur, you know. Um, that's just one example from the UK, but um, as an example, and that obviously points directly to greed. You know, where did those two billion pounds go? Go to why do they need to strip 
the uh, National Health Service of two billion. Well, because either they don't have it or they want to uh, direct it to some somewhere else that's more profitable for the people at the top because obviously funding a National Health Service is essentially giving taxpayers' money back to the taxpayer to support them, uh, support their, their health. Uh, that's not very profitable. Um, so it's better off to just take those taxes and send them where you want, something more profitable, like maybe making war, you know, waging war is much more profitable. You could uh, put that $2 billion into the into the defense industry and um, and make lots of money for the directors of uh, armaments manufacturers and, and their holy taxation you're right again batman and and their political and their political friends and um and let the people then pay through the nose if they can for private healthcare but most of them probably can't so and the healthcare system in the UK is terrible anyway uh, it has been eviscerated progressively over the past you know, 10 or 15 years, really, uh, I mean, I, I know from kind of direct, uh, well, second-hand account, it's, uh, from a family member who who um, there was a, a he's, not, he's not a direct blood family member, but he's a extended family member who was, who was dying of cancer, basically, in a hospital, and it was in somewhere in the kind of outskirts of London, I think, near Reading, and um, my my brother was actually telling me that the, the conditions in that hospital were uh, were horrible for him. A cancer, uh, you know, a terminal, last stage, final stage, a cancer sufferer. Um, there was basically, you know, you can imagine the situation, but there was no one, there was no nurses to take care of him. Uh, if, if my brother and his wife weren't uh, there to basically take care of, of him, um, in all the ways that he needed to be taken care of, um, he wouldn't he wouldn't have had it. Uh, it's just massively over overcrowded, and this is particularly in areas of uh, major, really large urban areas where you have a lot of people concentrated on a small, relatively small number of hospitals. You just don't want to be there. You don't want to be in that position ever in your entire life, and you don't want to see anybody you care about in that position. That's what he said, and. Uh, and these are the, this is the kind of situation. This was this is a couple of years ago, and this is the kind of situation that they're stripping further money from. You know, they're going to make it worse, uh, and they don't care. You know, I mean, they just have that in all sorts of ways, but they just simply don't care um, because they're just they're literally they're psychopaths or they're ponderized. You know, they're just extreme narcissists who simply don't care about other people when they come to make decisions about the welfare of the population as a whole. Uh, well, the pop, the welfare of the population as a whole doesn't really matter so much. Whatever you can get away with, you get away with it. You know, you you avoid having to uh, act in any selfless kind of way. They can't really act in any selfless way. You know, they only do what they have to do to avoid you know some kind of punishment. But everything they can do and get away with, they do it. And that's not a good situation to be in. You know. So. Um, British elections coming up. Yeah, British elections. It's so it's it's got to a farcical uh, situation. It's kind of very it's all it's very similar to the US at this point. You know, I mean, there really is no one to pick from. It's a joke. It's a it's a it's a freak show. You know, and they still have these freaks on TV. You know, Cameron and 
um, Miliband. and Miliband and the rest. Uh, and even uh, Nigel Farage is, you know, he seems to have just been, he used the kind of speaking truth to power uh, angle uh, to get... To get to disposition. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he's just a bit of an idiot as well. So there's, really there's nobody, you know, I mean, all of this, I mean, Labour is like the biggest, you know, the anti-war party is the biggest warmongering party there is, or out warmongering the war party, uh, and have done since Tony Blair came in, which is, what, like almost 20 years ago. Um it's a joke. It really is, you know, just a bunch of clowns on stage, literally, you know, really. It's just so meaningless, just hot air and meaningless, meaningless uh, dialogue and speeches and stuff that's so patently obvious uh, or, or that so patently obviously um, meaningless, like I said, is uh, it's just mind-numbing. Yeah, they'll be lucky if they get voter turnout above 60%. Yeah. I mean, in these times when people are so dissatisfied, uh, all things being equal, you'd expect a very high turnout in the hope of changing something, but there's no hope of... Well, you've got nobody to vote for. No. I mean, you've got... You, you're given a list of basically three different parties uh, at this point, because the Liberal Democrats are... They're kind of like... They have to join up with somebody, so you've got Labour and the Conservatives and, and UKIP, and uh, it's like... A parade of horribles, you know, pick one of these assholes, you know, and you literally don't have another option or people don't know how to choose to, to create another option. There's nobody stepping up really to create another option because they have the whole system locked down. And, uh, yeah, it's very, very similar from, very similar to the U.S. I mean, but that's not surprising that the U.K. would have become a little carbon copy of the U.S., you know, because ideologically the people in the U.S. are, uh, are really the descendants of these Wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant types. Um, not that there's anything wrong with Protestants or white people, uh, or even Anglo-Saxons. But you put all that together, <laughs> it's a bad mixture. Um, uh, there's something brewing in, in among them. You know, it's it's obviously dodgy to get into racial issues, but from their own mouths. I mean, British imperialists a hundred years ago said and wrote, you know at least under the cover of the British race and the glory of the British race, we do what we do. Yeah. Of course, within them, there's, there's some other breed. This is where your East Coast U.S. establishment slash British elite uh, are of one mind, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We rule the world, you know. It's a bizarre... You, can, you know, it's hard to get into the genesis of it. Is there is there a genesis of it that's based in some kind of genetics? I don't know, but you could. I'd say you could probably take any race if you wanted and make them the kind of the elite or the dominant ones for a couple of hundred years or more, and um, and eventually they would become infected with that ideology. They've come to believe it, right? It's passed on from generation to generation that we rule the world. And you go about ruling the world and you prove to yourself that you're capable of ruling the world and therefore self-evidently you are the elite. You know, I can beat other people, therefore I'm the strongest. You know, uh, therefore I should beat other people to show that I'm the strongest. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy that's just based in pure egotism. And it fundamentally lacks compassion, you know. So maybe there might be an argument for some other genetics might come into it that might select for that kind of attitude or might promote uh, that attitude, um, and, that, and other other races maybe don't aren't so 
inclined in that direction or, you know, wouldn't be so uh, egregious about it. But who knows? That's all kind of speculation. We have um, Kent on the line. Uh, hi, Kent. How are you doing? Pretty good. Yeah, you were talking about the uh, the uh, situation where you're, uh, you know, send a family member in the hospital. And, uh, well, that, that um, you know, that is the manifestation of what uh, that strident, hideous old owl that was over there in Britain. Thatcher. She protected all this. Yeah. And remember, she famously said, there is no such thing as society. There is only families. So there you are. I mean, uh, that was your relative, you know. That's that's the, 30 years on, that's uh, what, what you see there in the hospital. If the family mm-hmm. doesn't come, and, you know. And I'm looking at a, something I saw today in RT. UK super rich double wealth over past decade. And right mm-hmm. there at the top, say, is some, some character named... Uh, Ukrainian businessman Leden Blavatnik with 13.17 billion pounds. You know, so there you go. I mean, that's, you know, Ukrainian. Yeah, yeah, Blavatnik. Now, there's a great uh, English name, first of all. Yeah, Ukrainian. So so you see what, you know, you know, obviously you made a connection with what's going on in Ukraine now. So so I I just had this few comments for you. All right. All right. Thanks, Kent. Okay. Yeah, that's, I mean, a country like, well, UK, Ukraine, they're not, um, it's like it's like they're gutted out in the process of polarization step by step, because let's say we take a starting point of Thatcher and, and this infection starts. In the end, you're left with, um, essentially, look, the description of a casino has been applied to London and its financial markets, the stock exchange and so on. It's so applicable. It's a casino where this internationalist breed comes to, or doesn't even ever arrive to, but the company they registers in London it could be Ukrainian, uh, a lot of Russian mafia types end up there. Israeli, they, they, they don't discriminate. Chinese tycoons, come on over. They will not bar entry to anyone based on his nominal or racial or ideological background. Mm. There's just a kind of a, you're one of us, no matter where you're from, recognition, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, money talks, you know, it's uh, it's just pure, it's pure narcissism, pure, uh, you know, um, a cult of the self, basically, you know, uh, and it, the fundamental seed of of conscience or compassion for other human beings has com- been completely destroyed in these people. Yeah. And they're making decisions that these are people who are supposedly, who are making decisions uh, that caters to or or doesn't cater to the welfare of, of millions of people. Yeah. And you know, one, one, one decision like that at the top has has effects, has direct effects on yeah. people, you know, and people are at the mercy of it. They've allowed themselves to, to be placed at the mercy of, of this kind of thing. And because they don't, they don't conceive of, of a type of person or type of human being that would have so little compassion. You know, uh, the ordinary person in the street has compassion. I mean, there's even, there's been protests in London uh, today, I think, about the, those migrants coming from North Africa and elsewhere in many different places, but essentially getting on boats in, in North Africa and Libya, uh, etc., and drowning 
just this last week, seven, well, eight, maybe 900 people drowned in one boat accident and then another one that landed in, on um, landed on the island, Great Island of Rhodes where 80 people uh, died. Um, and there's been protests in London today about EU policy, essentially, uh, towards migrants coming from, coming across the Mediterranean, uh, saying in their placards were, don't let them drown. You know, which is perceived as the obvious, or uh, obviously perceived the, uh, the 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 policy that prevailed, which is to just let them drown. You know, don't don't take any action. You know, so you have that an example of compassion there amongst ordinary people for just other human beings, um, but they can't conceive those ordinary those people can't conceive that there are people in positions of power who um, who don't have that compassion when they see eight or nine hundred people drowning uh, in the Mediterranean who are desperate to leave their country and, and come to Europe, they don't uh, they don't care. It's like they're like it's like reading a cartoon for them, you know. No, it's real, it doesn't matter, they don't care. And they're not willing to, they're not interested in taking any any action to stop it happening because they don't feel anything for other people. And um it's bizarre, you know, it's it's the reality is, is completely the inverse of what people believe. People think that their leaders are great people. They're, they're exceptional people. That's why they're leaders, right? Therefore, they would have, in theory, they would have more compassion than the average person in the street. But the, the, in fact, the opposite is true. They have much, much less, if any at all. Uh, and that's the upside down world we live in. There was an article in British tabloid uh, last week, um, op-ed, opinion piece, trying to convince the British masses that these migrants coming from North Africa were cockroaches who, if we try to help them, we're going to shoot ourselves in the feet because like cockroaches, they will survive very tough conditions. And if they actually make it here, they will overpower us. Yeah. Which is just, uh, I, I mean, your jaw drops, but that's printed in millions and millions of newspapers. Yeah, they're trying, that's the infection we're talking about. Uh, the infection, that kind of ideology, that, that compassionless belief system or inner nature is being spread by the media to the ordinary person who reads that and, and then is yeah. meant to be swayed by and that belief. It's pounded day after day, yeah. day after day. Yeah, I mean, and that's that they, they promote that idea because it would cost too much money because they don't want, their, first of all, they're kind of fun, well, they're kind of racist. There's an undercurrent of racism uh, there amongst these kind of elite, the establishment kind of people who... Uh, sanction these kind of articles in newspapers and and pol- politicians who who will say the same thing in not so many words. And but they also don't aren't interested in expending any money because obviously the implication is that these people would have to be given uh, uh, you know state funds and they're not willing to because they see state funds as their own funds. The taxes you pay that's like it's like paying your your tithes to your to your landlord to your lord. Lord of the Manor, basically, that under under pain of flogging or death or something, you have to pay. That's what you when you pay your taxes, you give that money, you give your money to the state, and the people who control the state are the landlords, the the elite, and and they see that as their rightful money. That's not the state's money. It's not the country's money. It's not your money. You're giving that to them, and you owe that to them, and they they will do with it as they see fit, and as they see fit is to enrich themselves. By using that money, they're not about to give it to some Africans. First of all, they're not about to give it to anybody unless they can make a profit from it. 
not about to give it away for, uh, to anybody, and certainly not to uncivilized barbarians from Africa. Now, there's a deeper issue here, the kind of unsaid in the mainstream. They're coming, well, first of all, there have been uh, dozens of these capsized boats. Uh, tens of thousands. thousands. Thousands certainly have drowned. Since in the past 10 years, yeah. But it is a massive increase since the mm-hmm. bombing of Libya. Mm-hmm. Libya was a relatively safe place for them to go and to find work. There were many millions of black Africans from further south in Africa, east and west, who found some kind of a life in Li- Libya, which was effectively the leading, or potentially going to be the leading most prosperous country in right. Africa, which had awesome plans to dramatically shift the balance within Africa, give Africa a chance, you know. Now, these leaders, David Cameron, when he speaks about this issue, needs to shut the hell up. This issue is largely the result of people fleeing what was once the refuge of North Africa to the hellhole it is now because David Cameron blew it back to kingdom come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not just, and not just uh, Libya. Obviously, it's, it's uh, for, people are coming from further south um, to Libya, you know, further south in Africa, from Kenya with Boko Haram, which is, you know, another, there's evidence that, that uh, they're kind of like a, a proxy Muslim terror group. Um, then in Sudan, I mean, it's going, going on for a long time in Sudan, in Eritrea, you have, you have Western um, corporate and military and government interests in those countries going back decades and uh, being directly involved in the conflicts that have been in those countries that have caused these kind of um, these mass kind of uh, movements of people out of war-torn areas uh, where the wars have been facilitated, started by Western powers. Uh, people in, people on one of these boats from this week were from Syria came from Syria down through Saudi Arabia and got across into Africa or whatever on a boat and then, you know, just out there through from Saudi Arabia over to Eritrea, whatever, and then up to Libya and then on a boat to try and get over to to Europe, to Italy. Um, so the Syrian crisis that again is directly, as everybody should know, is directly the, um, the result or directly caused by US in particular and British provocations and uh, in league with the Saudis of, of, of civil war effectively in, in Syria going back five five years now. And there's a massive amount of refugees from Syria coming looking to come to Europe as well. And it's directly those the, the reason those there are Syrian refugees trying to get into Europe on these boats is uh, because of Western policy in Syria, which is a psychopathic, warmongering, aggressive policy that yeah. attempted to overthrow uh, the of Assad. Yeah. Um, so they, they bird direct. There's a direct line of culpability there. Yeah. And yet they, and then when they're, when they're asked to do something about this migrant crisis, they say, no, it's not our problem. Well, it is. It's directly your fault. Well, fact. what you notice though this week is that it, it has been given mainstream airtime. I mean, there were many others who were drowned before and they didn't. And the Four largest country in the European Union made a point of meeting and saying, yes, this is going to be on the agenda in Brussels when we discuss it. Mm. So Cameron, Hollande, 
the Italian Prime Minister, what's his name, Matteo something, and Merkel make a point of having a photo shoot. Yes, it's on our agenda. We're discussing it right now. Is that because they care? Uh, no, <laughs> the protesters care. Well, I have a feeling the protesters are being used in a big way well, yeah. to help make this an issue because they are planning something. Um, let me quote the Italian foreign minister. He's proposing killing two birds with one stone. How about we have another round of targeted airstrikes on Libya yeah, to solve bit. ISIS in Libya mm. as of three weeks ago? Plus the refugee problems. Yeah. This is a cycle. The cycle just says this cuts straight through. There, mm-hmm. There's no conscience about the plight of the people. So he's like, "Oh, yes, we have two issues to deal with. Okay, well, this is airstrikes can deal with both." Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, proposing targeted airstrikes, anti-terrorist strikes on coastal regions where the boats are leaving from along North Africa. And it's an urgent issue. We don't have months to sort this out. The double risk of the advance of the Islamic State in Libya and then over into Italy and southern Europe and the waves of migrants means we're in a race against the clock. Yeah, Dr. Bomb ISIS and the migrants to stop them getting on boats. You see, in his mind, well, if, if I'm not going to assume he's a psycho, but in a psycho's mind, you could see how there's no just there's no distinguishing between the two. The cockroaches are ISIS and the cockroaches are the refugees. Mm-hmm. So if you bomb them, you'll keep them back. Yep. Easy. Yeah, well they they set this up several months ago by saying by having ISIS say that they were going to wage asymmetric warfare on Europe by sending over uh, a five hundred thousand or a million yes. or something refugees. Disguised as refugees. Not dis- well disguised, but amongst amongst their number would be ISIS agents, but it would be asymmetric warfare to simply try and cripple the system by by give them a problem of all these refugees and amongst them would be ISIS operatives. It's such it's a it's psycho bullshit, psycho no? retrospective way of saying, Oh God, the chickens have come home to Reese. They are now all flooding into Europe because yeah. of the problem we created. Yeah. So let's come up with a narrative. Yeah for why it's happening. Exactly. And a narrative that gives us the public support back home right. to deal with the refugees by bombing them. Right. And scare them, you know. I mean, the ISIS in that situation was uh, very useful because they were scaring the European populations and turning them against this idea of refugees, right? Any compassion that ordinary people might have for refugees was gone when it was announced that uh, ISIS might be amongst them. Uh, that would get you know ordinary people on the out in the streets clamoring to stop these refugees coming, you know. Um, but another, talking about cockroaches, uh, Charlie Hebdo produced a magazine, produced a, a cartoon just this week about these, uh, this, um, the sinking of this boat with seven, eight hundred people on it. And uh, they just did a cartoon of uh, these caricatured um, kind of black people, you know, with big red lips and stuff, you know, really racist uh, caricature. Something like something from the heyday of the British Empire, you know. Yeah. And um, gollywogs. Gollywogs, yeah. And uh, they were floating down, you know, under the sea, uh, with fish kind of looking at them, you know, like what the hell's going on here, floating down, drowning basically. And uh, and the caption was a uh, family reunion, uh, uh, undersea family re- reunion or something. So that's Charlie Hebdo, you know. That's, uh, that's so. That's, their relatives had previously died on attempts to reach Europe, and. They're yeah. going to see their relatives right. by sinking to the bottom of the yeah. Right, yeah. yeah and the really, fish on the way down are like, get out of our country. Yeah, exactly. Who yeah. are you? So this this was Charlie Hebdo. These were this was uh, just we Charlie. This was who you were meant to be 
support and, and to identify with. This is the kind of mentality that you're meant to identify with, uh, fundamentally racist and anti-human, um, you know, um, having no compassion whatsoever for the death of hundreds of people, but hundreds of people who are in, in a desperate situation uh, caused by your own government, and you're meant to look down your nose at them. That's what the state wants you to do. And it's, you know, it's promoted by the media and it's promoted by this uh, this ridiculous magazine, Charlie Hebdo, which is uh, which you were all meant to be uh, a part of a few months back. It's kind of disgusting, but there you go. It's it's freedom of speech. It's freedom to speak down to you, freedom to abuse you if you dare to speak back to us, freedom to kill you, in fact, if we don't like what you say. Yeah. So, it's, but it's nothing new, you know. That's the thing. It's just got worse, and it's become a kind of pandemic. This, you know, anti-human, compassionless ideology. Uh, it's, in the past hundred years, it's progressed slowly to the point that uh, where we are today, you know, where it's everywhere. Uh, but you know, hundred years ago, for example, the, just this week was the uh, commemoration of the Battle of Gallipoli um, during the First World War in 1915, when hundreds of thousands, well, 140,000 soldiers of the Allied forces, largely Australian, New Zealand, and British uh, and French soldiers, tried to take the Dardanelles, which is basically um, take it from the Ottoman Empire, from the Turks. Um, The Dardanelles are just that, uh, they're just close to the Bosphorus there, that split uh, where Turkey is split between Asia and Europe, a little part of Turkey on the left is uh, looking at the map is is in Europe, and there's this the Bosphorus, which gives access to the Black Sea, and and then just contrast that location with where Australia and New Zealand are, right? And ask yourself, okay, what what are you all doing there? Well, well it's part of the Allied war effort, right? It was uh, Australians and New Zealanders back then were not long, relatively speaking, not long off the boats from. From Western Europe, you know, so they were all ideologically they were they were part of the Allied Western war effort. So they were they were just selected. You you know you have got the Ottomans. You know the Ottomans supposedly the Turks weren't weren't up to much in theory, and the Australians, New Zealand uh, military could only muster a certain amount of uh, soldiers. They only had a, uh, so, such a they only had a certain size of army because of their population. So they were given the task of um, trying to take this. Uh, uh, these straits, basically, the Dardanelles, uh, which were given access to the Allies to uh, to the Black Sea, supposedly, um, and it was just a it was a horrible, a horrible job. It was just a terrible, like a, a, a fruitless or a futile attempt to to take the positions of the Turks because they were kind of on high ground. It was very inhospitable terrain, um, and they had to land on the beach, and they were just met by you know hail of of gunfire and over. Um, over eight months, it just lasted about eight months from 1915 into 1916. Um, and about, yeah, about half a million were, were killed um, by 250,000 Turks and about 140,000 Allied soldiers. They were just kind of mowed down. And this has been commemorated this week, particularly uh, in New Zealand and Australia and New Zealand, um, as their great contribution to the First World War Allied effort 
when it was complete, a complete feckless, pointless uh, slaughter of, of half a million people um, for no good reason whatsoever. But they have to, you know, pump it up as this uh, glorious moment in, in, in history, and it's, it kind of defines the Australian military history, Australian New Zealand military history. But it defines. I, I've been reading some of these glowing reports of the centenary, and as far as they're concerned, what they want people to think is that it defines a national consciousness yeah. of Australia and New Zealand mm-hmm. to have been pure cannon fodder for the, the Brits, <laughs> the yeah. people they're supposedly, you know, yeah. trying to move away from. Yeah. Well, the Brits had no problem. It's, it's like so sick and twisted. Brits had no problem. They were, <laughs> I mean, Australia was populated, you know, largely by people that the Brits didn't want in their territories. Uh, a couple of hundred years ago, and since then, they were they were sent on prison ships to Australia, and Australia was seeded with uh, with people that were evicted from the Great British Isles and, and other colonies. So I'm sure that ideology, that racist, effectively perception of Australia and New Zealand at the time in 1915 was, uh, you know, uh, prevailed in the sense of yeah, let's throw some. Of course, soldiers, even British soldiers, are seen by. Uh, as as Henry Kissinger said, by the, these elite, as just kind of uh, as cannon fodder, as useless, you know, human beings to throw at wars and, and and let them kill themselves, let them fight, fight and die for for us, basically. But um, they, uh, yeah, the, the point about this battle in Gallipoli um, was that, according to um, several historians, actually. It was actually the intention of the British and the French governments in 1915 to ensure uh, that this battle uh, would not succeed. Uh, and that, in fact, it was a ruse to keep the Russians in the First World War and, and the continuation of the, of the Russian effort in the Eastern Front because they wanted to uh, effectively keep the Russians fighting because the Russians wanted... Uh, this access to the to the Black Sea or exit from the Black Sea in the Bosphorus. So the Russians wanted, as part of the war booty from the First World War, they wanted access or they wanted control over the over the Bosphorus Straits and that part of modern day Turkey. And uh, so the British were keeping the pressure on by uh, making it look like because even though Russian and the British were officially allies, and there's no love lost between Tagos here and. Um, amongst allies they were fighting for who would control certain parts of the world as a result of this war they were in. So Yeah. It was a it was a kind of a threat to the Russians effectively. So the Russians wanted you know, at the time maybe thinking of backing out of the war under the Bolsheviks or, or with the Bolsheviks kind of uh, coming coming up taking up the rear type of thing. Um they uh, they wanted to keep the Russian Red Army in the war. Well they they knew they could only do what they wanted to do to Germany, mm-hmm. break it up and neutralize it as a uh, as a continental competitor to the British Empire by having Russia fully engaged with all of its resources and yeah. manpower against Germany. Have it exhausted itself, yeah. So the ruse was to, um, it's, it was part of the same bait that got Russia involved in the first place. They, the British made some noises about how, well, look what's happening. The Ottoman Empire is breaking up. You want, strategically, you want the Dardanelles for access to a southern port. But there's more than that because the part of the founding ethos of Russia is that 
while its first big big city state from which the country emerged was Kiev, there's a kind of a a broader ethos, which is that Russia was originally conceived or founded in Byzantium. Mm -hmm. The whole Orthodox Church Mm -hmm. begins in modern-day Istanbul. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of bait is laid out yeah, it's our history. the Russian by saying, look, we're, we're pushing from the south. You keep on pushing east and down, uh, down and come and meet us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was, divide it up. It, simultaneously, it would have, th- the Russians might have gone, oh, oh, maybe they're tricking us here. Yes, we better get engaged more. Yeah. Because they might take the, the Dardanelles and therefore Istanbul. Well, that's what I meant. Promise. Yeah, that's what I mean when they're saying there's no lo- no no love lost between cycles. Our allies in, in in this war in Russia and Britain were allies, but, uh, but in terms in terms of their conquering and the, and the co- countries that they were conquering, they did not trust each other, and they're, certainly yeah. the Russians they, they, they were interested in specific parts of the globe that were being conquered that they wanted to conquer in the First World War. And uh, yeah, they they weren't certainly none of them trusted neither trusted the other in terms of what you know what they would be whether they would make good on their promises or who would get what basically. Yes, true. And they were out cycled, out strategized. I mean, they ever even think that that it could have been a ruse that Britain was only there to that they had no intention of actually. Winning in, right. in Gallipoli, they, no they probably never it. even thought of that. You know, mm-hmm. that's like that's a whole other level of duplicitousness. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, the person who's who's the most evil effectively uh, wins out. You know, who will do something that the other would never conceive of doing. Go beyond even you know what you would assume to be basic humanity. You know, throw one hundred and forty thousand or sacrifice one hundred and forty thousand of your soldiers, for, your own soldiers, of your own soldiers for no good reason. Who would concede that you would be doing that just simply uh, for an ulterior purpose, it, you know, yeah, and not, it's, not, it's, not expect to win? It's out of battle. this world. I think it's why it's taken 100 years to establish it. Yeah. It's, it's phenomenal. But speaking about out of this world, in that battle of uh, Gallipoli, which is just like a peninsula, um, just south of the Bosphorus there, south of Istanbul, um, there were part of the the British Army was the uh, Royal Norfolk Re- Regiment. And um, during uh, during those eight months, of a certain, I can't remember when it was exactly, um, sometime in ni- 1915, um, this Royal Norfolk Regiment, uh, comprising 266 soldiers, um, this was an account given by New Zealand, a New Zealand field company, uh, members of a New Zealand field company who saw it happen, this Norfolk Regiment, Royal Norfolk Regiment, marched up a hillside in Suvla Bay, which is just on the on the on the Gallipoli Peninsula, uh, and the hill was shrouded in a low-lying mist, and the English soldiers marched straight into it without hesitation, and they never came out. After the last of the battalion had entered the mist, it slowly lifted off the hillside to join the clouds in the sky. So that was a case of 266 British soldiers marching into a misty cloud, low-lying misty cloud on a hillside, and when it lifted, they were they, all of them had basically disappeared. Um, 
completely like and afterwards nothing exactly uh, everything had disappeared all of them and all of their possessions had completely disappeared and when it was over uh, after the war the British government demanded that Turkey return them thinking that the Turks had captured them and the Turks said we never saw them uh, we don't know where they are and we don't know what happened to them we never had any uh, encounter with them whatsoever so that sounds to me like a case of mass abduction yeah because cloud, there have been incidents where clouds in, in UFO lore, where clouds uh, act very strangely, and even the UFO type craft kind of merged with clouds or came out of clouds or uh, kind of transformed into clouds. There's all sorts of references to UFOs and clouds, you know. Um, very strange. Yeah, bizarre things happen, though, in, in battle scenes. Um, just to clarify something, um, in the centenary commemorations, you may have noticed that the British delegation, I'm thinking of images I saw of Prince Charles in, I think, British Admiralty uniform, his son Harry, mm. thankfully not wearing his Nazi uniform, that would not have gone down too well, and uh, they were sitting next to the Prime Minister of Turkey, Erdogan, and you're saying to yourself, well, hang on, how if they were there fighting the Turks, well, surely they're not going to remember this together. Well, you see, that was the old Turkey they were fighting. They were fighting the Ottoman Turks. Right. Ottoman the third country whose founding myth comes from this particular battle is Turkey. Turkey, modern Turkey, is the creation of the alliance of some Turks with the Brits against their own country, so to speak, Ottoman Turkey. And that's what gave rise to Turkey we know today, which is the NATO vassal, the completely feckless <laughs> uh, Middle Eastern right-hand man of the United States, of course, and Israel, no matter what they say publicly in their disagreements over treatment of Palestinians. Modern Turkey is founded on uh, the Battle of Gallipoli also a completely contrived battle that, to quote uh, the British grand strategist like Alfred Milner at the time, whose purpose was to keep Russia in the war. That's It's, it's a repeating theme. Are you starting to see a pattern here? Yeah. Here we are today. It's containing Russia. Well, it's amazing to see the, the mythos around war that ordinary people believe and then read about the reality of it, you know, the much more practical reality of it, you know, with generals and politicians sending, you know, hundreds of thousands of men uh, to, to their deaths for some really, you know, a rather spurious, when you, when you think about it, a spurious kind of reason, you know, uh, by normal per people's standards, you know, well, you don't need that big chunk of land. What, why, why do you really, you don't really want it. What, you know, you'd be okay without it. You don't have to, I have to control that part of the globe, you know. Uh, for they, they do it for reasons that make no sense whatsoever to the ordinary person, ordinary ordinary, ordinary human being, uh, especially when the price is the death of hundreds of thousands or millions of ordinary people. But of course, we're not talking about ordinary people here that are making these decisions. So, um, to give you an idea of how ingrained this particular lie is, one hundred years later. Um, an Australian broadcaster, a TV presenter, was fired 
post haste in a matter of hours after tweeting yesterday. His name is his name is Scott McIntyre, uh, TV presenter for SBS Channel. He tweeted the cultivation of an imperialist invasion of a foreign nation, namely Ottoman Turkey, that Australia had no quarrel with, is against all ideals of modern society. Hardly contentious. Sacked. <laughs> Sacked in a matter of hours. Like. Yeah, because he was dispelling the mythos around um, the f- fantastical, fanciful, delusional mythos around um, this great war and noble war and fighting for... You know, whatever yeah. whatever they wanted to say they were fighting for, when in fact they were fighting for the greed and lust and power of an elite few psychopaths. Uh, but you can't have ordinary people becoming aware of that and changing their their understanding of history uh, yeah. to, to, to reflect that truth. Because then how are you going to get people to go and fight wars that you want them to fight in the future? Exactly. For the, for the same reason they're exactly. not going to go if they start to understand that that is what war is effectively about. It's a racket. As there are hundreds. As Butler said. Exactly. There are hundreds of Australians next door in Syria right now doing the same thing for the same, essentially the same masters as 100 years ago. Yeah. They have got to keep perpetuating the mythos. Yeah, the mythos is not just for the soldiers who would go and fight the war, but for the population, the ordinary people, the mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters who would encourage the soldiers to go off and uh, and to honor them and tell them they're doing a wonderful thing. It has to be a society-wide belief that war wars are ever fought for any kind of noble ideal. And when they're fought for ignoble ideals almost every single time, and they're just it's just sending your your loved ones to be slaughtered for no good reason to kill and be killed for no good reason no reason that matters to you that has any benefit to you whatsoever and it's amazing that repeatedly throughout history people can be cajoled and fooled and manipulated into actually doing this into sending their loved ones their family members off to be slaughtered and to kill other people who they have no quarrel with it just it boggles the mind every year since so on the hundredth anniversary of Every year on the anniversary of the Gallipoli campaign, hundreds, and this year I believe thousands, of New Zealanders and Australians have flown to Gallipoli, yeah, Gallipoli year, yeah. to drink beer in the sun and mm-hmm. commemorate the fallen. Mm-hmm. In a battle they failed. Mm-hmm. It was an epic failure. Mm-hmm. Thousands of, of those soldiers died from thirst because yeah. of lack of because there was no water in the area. No, they died of dehydration and the heat there, no water. There was no and water. they go and they sit there on the banks of the water and they get pissed. Mm-hmm. They drink themselves. Mm-hmm. Stupid. That is the uh, founding stone of Australia. Yeah, but people, and people, like I said, people can't uh, have to believe that, have to believe in that mythos because to believe otherwise is just too horrifying for them to accept uh, what we've just been saying that their loved ones, their grandfathers, etc., um, were dupes, you know, were fooled into sacrificing their lives for for psychopaths, for the enrichment of psychopaths. In fact, not even for the enrichment of psychopaths, well, maybe the enrichment, but just for the, the, the titillation, effectively, the power lost and the greed of, of psychopaths in power. So, um, yeah. And they're doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing today. I mean, um, you know, with a, with a different 
slightly different twist on it, you know, with this ISIS business. You know, it's interesting to see that ISIS have uh, uh, released another video uh, where they supposedly filmed, filmed in Yemen, where they say that they have, you know, they have arrived and that they have arrived to do what? They've arrived to cut the throats of the Houthi rebels. So here you have a group of supposed Islamic extremists, Muslim extremists, whatever, fighting for Islam to create a Muslim caliphate in this, you know, in the area of the Middle East, and to expel the infidel invaders. And the Houthis who have just expelled the Houthis who the infidel yoke, the have, Western who are yoke. effectively doing what ISIS say they want to do. They're now saying that they're going to. Um, uh, to cut the throats of the Houthis, they say, We have come to Yemen with men hungry for your blood to avenge the Sunnis and to take back the land they have occupied. So they're accusing the Houthis of occupying Yemen. So uh, when in fact the Houthis have just liberated or are attempting to liberate uh, Yemen from uh, Western puppet client uh, dictators like Hadi, who, was, who fled and left to, uh, popped up in Saudi Arabia, and to to evict Saudi Arabia, the Saudi influence uh, from from Yemen, uh, and the Saudis, of course, have been bombing uh, Yemen because they don't want uh, they want a ruling regime in Yemen that is a mirror image of their own, which is effectively uh, a client state or a Western-backed, Western-supported, U.S.-supported state in Yemen, just like the Saudis are, and. Um, so it's bizarre, but it exposes ISIS clearly as a tool of Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia is bombing Yemen and attacking the Houthis, and then comes ISIS to attack the Houthis um, on the orders clearly of uh, Saudi Arabia. And we should remember also that this whole campaign began, the, or was preceded by the, the the Saudi bombardment of the Houthi rebellion in Yemen, was preceded by. Um, <clears throat> by suicide bomb attacks in two mosques, I think. Attributed to? Attributed to ISIS, effectively, or Al-Qaeda slash ISIS. Yeah. They, they weren't sure. But uh, it's an example. So do you have a nexus here of Islamic terrorism, uh, suicide bombing, being directly associated or paid or funded by uh, Saudi Arabia, which is a fully supported client regime of the U.S. empire in the Middle East. I mean, it couldn't be any clearer. Yeah. By proxy, you have here ISIS attacking a grassroots rebellion uh, in Yemen uh, that wants to evict Western puppet regime. I mean, it's um, and ISIS, therefore, is doing the bidding of or doing the work of or fulfilling the foreign policy objectives of the U.S. State Department. I mean, it's amazing that people don't put that very simple two plus two uh, calculation together there, but there you go. Of course, they're not told it in the media. The media doesn't do it, so whatever the media says is true, right? It's a replay of what happened in Mali in 2012. Grassroots rebellion on the verge of consolidating its power in Mali. And, oh, Suddenly, there's a terrorist threat. No doubt they had been coming down from 
Libya and Algeria in the months beforehand. But by the time it's mediatized, as Pierre likes to say, not really a word in English, but I like it. By the time it's a mediatized event, uh, it's battle stations in France, which is the chosen venue for sending Western troops in to solve the problem of the terrorists who overran the country. But hang on, those terrorists were sicked onto like a smokescreen over the grassroots rebellion to justify the annihilation of that rebellion for the imperator, imperator back in Europe and ultimately back in the US. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's just, I mean, it's all, if people would just get the emotional considerations uh, uh, out of their faces or out of their heads, you know, the emotional thinking out of their heads, this all makes so much sense, you know, uh, from just from a geopolitical, whatever, you know, military objective. It's so obvious that this is the thing to do, that this is the way you do things. You know, the U.S. doesn't have the political will or the political power to put boots on the ground um, in various different countries where their interests are threatened. So they uh, directly or indirectly create and fund and train and arm a proxy army to stir things up and to set fires, you know, figuratively speaking, start wars, start civil wars, etc., in the countries where their interests are being threatened. It's not rocket science. It's very straightforward, uh, plain, strategic thinking. This is what you should do in that situation where you can't put your own military in there or for whatever reason you don't want to look bad or you want to do it kind of by deception indirectly. It's pretty pretty simple. That's what you do. And this is, uh, there's now pretty almost, you know, hard evidence that this is what is happening. You know, when you see the Houthis in Yemen having just kicked out a Western-supported government and ISIS comes in to attack these these guys who just kicked out the U.S.'s man in Yemen, well, they're working for the U.S. then. Indirectly or directly, I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, it's not rocket science. Like I said, it's pretty obvious. But, of course, that's just emotionally. That's How could that can't be? No. They can't be on our side. They are our our opposite. They are our nemesis. Exactly. Well, that's the cover for it. That's how the the cunning is is added into the mixture where you provide a a rationale uh, where it's very difficult for people to believe what their eyes are telling them because you've set it up in advance that this is our enemy and we're fighting them. Of course, the U.S. isn't fighting ISIS at all. I mean, if anything, evidence is that accidentally they get uh, weapons shipments dropped to them. They're supposedly trying to drop them to the Kurds or something and they accidentally end up in the hands of ISIS. Of course, you know, the U.S. invaded Iraq and destroyed Iraq with 26 million people um, over the course of 10 years and invaded it and... um, and completely obliterated Iraq and created the conditions for the chaos that's there today. Um, but, you know, a group like ISIS, um, they, they can't deal with a group like ISIS. This kind of like uh, just came out of nowhere, this ragtag bunch of jihadis, uh, all of the American firepower in the Middle East, um, either directly or indirectly with the Saudi and do nothing about it. It's ridiculous. The whole contention is just absolutely preposterous, you know, so... Um, there's a glorious little little portent of how the alleged nemesis, if you follow through rationally, as we're saying, 
is of one mind with Western liberalism. Western liberalism today, certainly at its root, is this nihilistic nothingness behind it. There is no uh, sound basis for it. When you get into it, it, just look at the state of the countries in the West. They're, they're crumbling from within. So uh, you can see that very clearly in the actions of ISIS, you know, head choppings, mm-hmm. all this stuff. Uh, there's a glorious little portent, if you can call it that. ISIS, uh, they have a great PR department. I don't know who's running it, but they announced this week that they're setting up the ISHS, NS. Yep. <clears throat> the Islamic State National Health Service to be modeled after the British National mm-hmm. Health Service. In their PR for it, they literally took the British logo and the look and feel of how the NHS is presented to the public of the UK. It's, it's like, I, I don't think there's a, there might not be anything more to it than that, but... It's a farce, yeah. It's just, it's just pure Hollywood production techniques, you know. It's... Um, in part, I think, was a lot of the doctors who are actually in Syria and Iraq as part of their cause and that are helping these ISIS fighters. They're from the UK. Yeah, one of them's from one of the guy in the video you're talking about was actually Australian, an Australian doctor, and then he's known in Australia. He was just a normal doctor who came up through medical school and stuff, and, and then he uh, he showed no signs of any inclinations towards jihad or anything strange like that. And then he appears in this ISIS video and like, where the hell did he come from? And he's there talking about that he came from Australia to help his brothers because they need medical equipment and or medical services and, and trained doctors. And he called on all the other medical brothers uh, to come and sisters to come and uh, to come and help uh, in this establishment of uh, an ISIS uh, health service. But it's interesting to see those kind of people because he's just one example. That guy is one example of many others who have supposedly gone I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of them have gone from Western countries, the US, France, Germany, the UK, have gone to fight with ISIS. And you wonder if this, these are real people. And I think they are because, you know, there's a lot of people that are very stupid, you know, um, who will go with it, who believe this kind of, um, these uh, fanciful notions of a caliphate yeah. and establishing Islamic uh, law and having a you know a Muslim society and stuff and uh, and people go and they don't understand what what it's all about basically uh, and they go so I mean I think that's genuine you know it's not just uh, these people aren't being sent by intelligence agencies from I mean not all of them anyway um, some of them are genuinely motivated if you can call idiocy uh, genuinely motivated motivated but at the same time there's a report that ISIS had actually killed 100 foreign foreign recruits that had joined them because they were trying to leave. Uh, they had said, they had, they had eventually took them, you know, whatever number of months there to realize that this was a load of BS. And they saw just it was, uh, it was a ridiculous situation. So they tried to leave again and then they were, they found out that they couldn't, you know, it's like the mafia. Uh, it's easy to join, but, or like, CIA or something. It's easy to join, but not so easy to leave, you know. Yeah. So um, the whole thing is just a farce. That's that's what I get from it. Looking at it every day, it's a, a wonderful mixture of chaos and farce. You know, chaotic farce, basically not farcical chaos because it's real chaos, but it's uh, it's a 
chaotic force, basically, you know, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So it's not just your ordinary chaos, you know, it's, no. it's just ridiculous stuff that you can't even believe, you know, it's just like it strains the boundaries of belief that this stuff is even happening, even though it's all real. It know? remains to be seen what they'll do next. I mean, <laughs> pre-ISIS days, we thought, Jesus, well, they can't, they can't do anything worse or more impressive but they came up with ISIS and well, they've yeah. got Japanese people you know whipping up hysteria because some Japanese guy in the region was allegedly beheaded they've got foil terror attacks all the way down in Australia ISIS is coming to get you yeah. on Anzac Day that's the day they celebrate this battle in Turkey uh it's dynamic narrative, so it can be retrospectively applied. Uh, suicide attacks this week in Afghanistan killed something like 35 people. ISIS claims responsibility. Yeah. But I mean, there was ISIS in Afghanistan. Yeah. I, I, I thought we were dealing with a group in Syria and Iraq. They, they well, Afghanistan go. is 6,000 miles. That way it doesn't matter. It's just, They can be moved anywhere. Yeah. They can be moved on a on a private jet, you know, or on a car. Uh, a Hercules, a U.S. Hercules cargo plane, you know, a troop plane, just bundle a couple of hundred of them on there and um, on a couple of planes and, and they can pop up anywhere you want, you know, and, well, and with, well, with with their videographer in tow to make tow. a nice video and produce it on the web and say, we have arrived in this country, here we go. That's why it's, you know, it's farcical that, that this is being presented as something real, as if this group could actually do what they're claiming to be to do, to do on their own steam. Obviously, they've got massive support state support behind them, you know. It's the same as 9-11, you know, as many people in positions of uh, uh, political positions around the world, like heads of state. Uh, I think there was one guy in Germany at the time, I can't remember who it was, but a German politician said that immediately after 9-11 that this was obviously a, um, this couldn't have happened without state sponsorship. Either resources of the state was behind uh, an operation like 9-11, the same is true for ISIS in all the things that they're supposedly doing, they cannot be doing any of this without state sponsorship. Now, you obviously look directly at Saudi Arabia because that's where they come from. Saudi Arabia, like we just said, in Yemen, they're fighting uh, Saudi Arabia's battle in Yemen. They're the troops on the ground. Saudi Arabia hasn't put any troops on the ground in Yemen. They've put ISIS on the ground in Yemen while they continue to conduct airstrikes. Um, so, but who, then you look at who supports Saudi Arabia. Well, Saudi Arabia wouldn't exist today without, originally the British, but in the last you know, 50 years, without the Americans protecting them and backing them to the hilt, even to the point of covering up the well-known evidence, the hard evidence that nobody disputes. All of, this, all of the 9-11 hijackers, or almost all of them, came from Saudi Arabia. Few came from Pakistan. But that was, you know, Saudi Arabia was never pulled up on that, you know, by America. You know, no. who are Saudi nationals? You know, Osama bin Laden was a member of the Saudi elite. You know, there was never any questions about, or publicly exposed, or publicly revealed questions about Saudi Arabia's involvement in the 9/11 attacks. They went and they bombed Afghanistan and invaded Iraq. That had nothing to do with 9/11. But no one. I mean, these things should be questioned. People should just throw out this entire paradigm, the entire rationale that we've been told about what has happened in the world since at 9-11 and since 9-11 because none of it makes sense. It's all patently false and provably false but people just go along with it 
So you can understand our frustration here, folks, you know. It's just, it's nonsense. It's a farce. It's a freak show, you know. It's a complete another freak show with idiots, uh, you know. I mean, these people aren't idiots. Obviously, they have a plan. But the people, the people who believe it and the people not involved in the actual planning who who, who continue to uh, promote this narrative are, are clearly idiots. There's something wrong with them. They're either, they're either, they either know what they're doing and are consciously propagating a lie or they're intellectually, you know, underdeveloped. Uh, anyway, I don't know. We just kind of sit there and, you know, kind of dumbfounded at most of it. But getting back to, uh, or getting on to, yeah, I mean, there's not much to say about Nepal apart from that it was terrible. Um, I often wonder when these things happen, why countries that, um, though it's not always the case, but often major earthquakes happen in countries where they don't have, you know, kind of earthquake-proof buildings, etc., and buildings are, are, um, are, are made or maybe quite old and made in such a way that they're just, if an earthquake hits, they're going to fall at the first, the first tremor, you know. And uh, so they, we don't know yet because they're still, you know, still digging through the debris. But I mean, it's well over two thousand people and caused an earthquake. So caused an avalanche. Sorry, on on Everest that I read killed sixty five people. It's bizarre. It's the worst accident ever on on Everest. On Everest. Yeah. And um, and there have been a few big ones there in right. recent years from and, other. And they said they were expecting. There was a disaster waiting to happen, literally a disaster waiting to happen. They knew that there was going to be a, a big one or an earthquake in that area and Kathmandu was going to, if it hit near Kathmandu, it was, cause Kathmandu has one million people, you know, and, uh, and there were also, there were obviously aftershocks, but there were, there were other uh, earthquakes not so big around the kind of, uh, standing eastwards towards the ring of fire, um, which happens quite often when there's, you know, a major quake in that area, like the New Zealand quake, 2011, I think, in Christchurch. Um, and then the, the Fukushima, the, the Japanese earthquake. Um, yeah, so I can't say it happens to these less developed countries that don't have, you know, earthquake-proof buildings and stuff. Obviously, Japan's a modern nation, New Zealand's a modern nation, but, um, yeah. Yeah. And who knows how, what forces combine to release whatever mechanical stresses build up in any one place. Yeah, and the interesting question is, are those mechanical stresses in any way related to the chaos that's going on on the planet? Or, or, you know, we talked about that in other shows about a human cosmic connection or whether there's some link between um, the kind of craziness that prevails amongst the human species and in terms of the, just their... Uh, the divergence between what's actually happening, what people believe to be happening, and people, the way people are being stifled and oppressed effectively and living very, you know, very, I don't know what the term is, uh, certainly not very healthy or creative or expressive lives, you know, in, in terms of the full potential of, of even the normal average potential of human beings. I mean, so many people are just living lives of kind of quiet desperation these days and stuff and they don't have an outlet 
because they're locked down and blocked from above by this, not just blocked, but they're, <clears throat> they're blocked by this, this massive gulf between them and the elite who control everything, but also um, they, they, they're infected by the same kind of uh, belief system and pathology and polarization of of of, uh, of the belief system and, and the, the value system uh, that where they themselves become their own kind of uh, persecutors or their own they're their own worst enemy where they adopt these nihilistic uh, kind of ways of, of being and way of living their lives. I mean, we could give lots of examples, but you know, children today and and developed in, in, in Western countries, you know, and the way that most of them actually experience their childhood over the past 10 or 20 years, you know, I mean, most of them have their faces stuck in electronic devices for yeah. most of the time, you know, and what's that doing to, well, the, the to way in which, development of children, you know, the way in which they express themselves creatively, um, this twerking thing mm. where, have you just picked up on the twerking thing? That's been going for I, a while. I've, been, I've heard slow. it for a while, but it came to my attention this week because there were a couple of incidents in Russia where schoolgirls, yeah. in one case of their own accord, got together and decided to perform a little stunt in front of a World War II memorial, right. for which they were punished yeah. by the town's mayor. Yeah. Good on it. But the other incident was more yeah. just, what the hell? It's some town in somewhere even more remote uh, in central Russia where the school, the school children were encouraged by their dance teachers to perform basically simulated sex and they're like 14 mm. on stage in front of all the parents mm-hmm. and the whole town. I mean, what the hell? That's, that's just... Should, do you think that should be an amendment to the U.S. Constitution? A new amendment. Could we stick it in there somewhere, like between I don't know, make it the third and a half one or something? The right to twerk, <laughs> you know, the freedom to twerk. Well, the <laughs> and no one can infringe your freedom to twerk. So that because if that ever if they ever try to take that away, I mean, you know, seventeen seventy six would rise again if uh, if they ever tried to come and take our twerking away. <laughs> you know, I mean that's that's why America is freer than Russia because that's an example you just give. The mayor of that town punished those schoolgirls for. Uh, I don't know what kind of punishment they got. Obviously, it's just I think it's, some of them got fifteen days, fifteen days in prison. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, uh, but that's an example of of the difference between freedom in the East and freedoms, freedoms in Russia and freedoms in, in the U.S. Yeah, schoolgirls in the U.S. No matter what age they are, are have the freedom to, you know, uh, film themselves shaking their backsides provocatively at a camera and upload it on YouTube well, for all yeah. to see, and that is a fundamental freedom. That's one of the underpinning. <clears throat> one of the fundamental uh, values that underpins uh, American society is, this, is the right to shake your arse at the camera, you know? And, uh, I mean, it, it really, uh, for uh, me... It, on it, on it, the it, face of it, that's all it is, but it's, uh, more importantly, it, for the, you know, the other things it leads to and or the, the repeated exposure to this kind of thing means that what they have is the freedom to become essentially sex slaves Sex yeah. objects, but that's what I'm for the rest of their lives. Well, if they want, yeah. But that's that's chances the, are good they'll be locked into it. But that's, until they're damaged, but freedom permanently. America, but the free, well, well, freedom in America to do that to shake your backside in front of a camera and provide it to the world to see is, uh, you know, it is a fundamental freedom that's necessary for all freedom-loving people because 
really, it provides so much in the way of intellectual and emotional development for people, you know. And um, and it's it, an example of just how strong that freedom is, is that it's not just that it's you're free to do that, but encouraged to do it as well by the media and, <clears throat> you know, uh, by your peers and by society in general, you know, it's accepted and it's promoted in various different ways, particularly by the media, you know, who will look favorably on it, you know. These kind of things um, are very important for, you know, building a better society because when you have a population of people who are able to shake their backsides in front of a camera, uh, the future of that society is assured uh, in terms of prosperity and uh, general spiritual uh, greatness. <laughs> so I wouldn't knock it, you know. Uh, I would say it's, and particularly if you can do it while you're looking at your iPad, you know. Um, while taking a selfie. Well, while browsing Facebook or something, you know, because uh, uh, you could tell people as you're twerking that you're twerking. So it's <laughs> instant gratification, you know, as well. Um, very important, you know. Very, very important. So, you know, yeah. Can only future, future's looking very bright, indeed. It's very bright. In fact, it was so bright in Chile last week that it turned the sky red when a volcano that's been dormant in an inactive and surprisingly erupted. This is called the Calbuco volcano. Mm-hmm. And sent lava, no, not lava, in this case it sent ash ash up to a thousand miles away and landed in a city in Argentina mm. and had a, this lightning storm. Mm. If you haven't seen video footage of it yet or photos, check it out. It's freaky as hell. Of course, they'll tell you this is normal, there's always lightning. No, there isn't. This is new. Mm. This kind of extreme lightning storm in the, in the ash clouds of erupting volcanoes is new. And it's to do with the changing environment, changing electric potentials between layers of the atmosphere and indeed the ground itself. There was another volcano in Chile last month, uh, Villa Rica. If you haven't seen it, check out the bright future that may point us to when it's viewed lava, actual lava, not ash, one kilometer high. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chile, of course, is a very active volcanic region, so you might say, well, come on, Neil, well, that's, the that's normal. Well, Calbuco was 40 years since it... In this erupted. particular case, but yeah. they'll say, well, yeah, there so many volcanoes. Mm. So, here are the basic stats. If anyone comes to you and says, yeah, but it's Chile volcanoes, of course, what do you expect? This is a quote from, from Pierre's book, actually, but the data he got from the United States Geological Survey earthquake database, their online database, so who knows if it's scrubbed or changed, this is what they publish anyway. Data for earthquakes from 1973 to 96, so 20-year period, earthquake and volcanic eruption frequencies were pretty much stable, up and down, but they follow a stable uh, trajectory. However, in 1996 onwards, an acceleration is noticeable, there was an increase from about 59, 60 eruptions per year at the end of the 90s to about 75 eruptions per year. 
from 2007-2010, that's about a 30% increase from a stable baseline. So it's, that's just not just a fluke in that particular three-year period. Uh, earthquakes, are, no, sorry, volcanic eruptions are definitely up. On earthquakes, again, this is data from the USGS website. In one region alone, central and eastern U.S., between 1973 and in that 20-year period, there were 21 earthquakes average per year. Huh? Uh, 21 earthquakes average per year. The current average is now 100. In 2014 alone, there were 659 quakes. So 23 per year, 2023, and today we're 660 earthquakes. There you go. Per year. So you can tell that to anybody who says it's all normal. We're going to leave it there for this week, folks. No relic this week. He's on holiday, or I think he's frozen. Uh, so, But he'll be back next week. Um, and so will we. So... Uh, thanks to our callers and thanks to our listeners and to our chatters like I said we'll be back next week uh, we might be talking to Stefan Verstappen next week so don't don't miss that one until then have a good one okay see you next week bye bye